Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 88. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Chris McIntosh. Chris has founded and built several multi-million dollar businesses in the investment arena, including overseeing the deployment of over $30 million in venture capital opportunities and advising family offices internationally. Prior to this, Chris built a career at Invesco Asset Management, Lehman Brothers, JPM Chase and Robert Flemings. This podcast was recorded on the 18th of February. Welcome to the show, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Fantastic. Well, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm probably less less interesting than most people would like to think. Um, That's a good way to start a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> we, it's all about expectations management. It is indeed. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to create your expectations up front. No, right. look, I mean, you, you listen to people all the time and everybody tries to um, elevate their own self-worth. And I think that's a human trait. Um and quite frankly, I'm too old for that shit and couldn't really be bothered. But in terms of um, who I am and what I do, I have lived a number of lives. All of them have been in the financial space, so to speak. Um, I began actually in your neck of the woods, which um, was opportune really in that I got into the investment banking world in the dot-com era. Um, being 18 years old, 19 years old, and um, in what was the beginnings of a phenomenal boom, you also had a lot of people being hired who didn't really know shit, and I happened to be one of them. Where Whereabouts was that, Chris? What, what country was that? Uh, in London. In London. <clears throat> yeah. So I um, started off at Invesco and um, moved around a bunch. In any event... Um, as you can well imagine, the things that took place and what I got involved with at the time I thought were completely normal. Um, I mean, I remember, for example, I would have been oh, maybe 22, being driven around in limousines, and I thought that was completely normal. I was just an analyst, for fuck's sakes, right? Um, and the sort of parties and things like that, I think I was at J.P. Morgan at the time, we had this Christmas party. And they hired, they had this fucking massive marquee with trapeze artists. And I mean, it was just, it was absurd. And again, at the time, I thought it was... Like the Wolf of Wall Street almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, rem- I don't recall throwing midgets around, but... No? You know, well, you're probably there. drunk though, to be fair. Oh, very. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm minded, you say, you know, I can't believe, you know, you can't believe what you see. I'm minded, I'm channeling the... Um, Paul will remember the name of the character, but I'm channeling the android from um, Blade Runner saying, I've I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. You know, attack ships off on fire off the shoulder of Orion. And uh, so how did you, you end up in the city? How, how did, what, what triggered that? Yeah, well, long story short, I actually, um, I grew up in Africa and um, fairly soon, um, I guess when I was probably 15 or I kind of, um, I did get quite interested in economics and finance and like all the things that a 15-year-old is not interested in, I kind of got interested in. Um, and part of that was this transition that was taking place in South Africa and um, 
And I um, very luckily started looking at things like currencies and um, there were some capital controls in place. And anyway, long story short, I'd, I'd figured out that I wanted to um, be a professional traveler. That was it. I was going, oh, no, I'm going to travel the world. And, um, and at the same time, I didn't want to become one of those bums that was found at the age of 25, 30, um, you know, still pouring uh, cocktails on the beach in Koh Samui. Um, with no real prospects ahead of me. And so I also um, figured at the time that I wanted to become a lawyer, and that was in no small part as a consequence of just reading many, many John Grisham books. Mm. Um, and so I, um, I, I um, began studies, um, law, um, doing it all correspondence, went over to London, worked there, and um, like I said, got into the um, investment banking world, really just because that's where um, there was actually work and they were hiring. I, I started off just basically shoveling bits of paper around. Um, but I took a – and also within my studies, I quite quickly transitioned to the point where the things that interested me were much more the economic side of things and not the legal side of things. Um and I was, you know, um, I was fortunate enough to find a boss that was um, very receptive. Um, I worked, I guess, you know, probably harder than anybody else. And um, and he he basically carried me around um, everywhere that he went. He um, he you know kept employing me, um, and I I landed up doing things that for my expertise and my um, education and so on and so forth, I would never have never have been able to do. So that was just pure luck, I guess, um, combined with a bit of a mixture of um, a good rapport and hard work. Um, but anyway, so that was um, how I kind of got into that world, so to speak. Um, and I learned a number of lessons, um, one of which was the mania that um, that can exist in markets. The other was the type of psychology that goes with it. Um, I worked, I actually began with that particular boss at Robert Fleming's, RF & Co., who were the last standing British investment bank, of course. Mm. Um, and then they got swallowed by Chase and then merged with JPM. And... Um, you know they were they were asset managers. A lot of the stuff they did was EM, and um, I, I remember. And you know we're back in similar a similar experience now. Um, I remember having a conversation with one of the top fund managers in the firm at lunch. We'd sit down and they had this amazing um, this amazing canteen. We almost couldn't call it a canteen because it was. It was more like a five-star restaurant. Yeah. And um, sitting down, having lunch with him, and they were talking about Orange. Remember Orange IPO? Mm-hmm. So, at, and it hadn't yet been priced. I can't remember who underwrote it in the end, but this thing was, we, we knew it was coming up and everyone was, was on the, you know, everybody was talking about it. And um, and I remember him saying, oh, you know, this is our allocation I can't remember what the number was. It didn't didn't matter. And I said, but as far as I'm aware, it's not being product. We we don't really know what what it's coming out at. He said, it doesn't matter. We have to have the allocation. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, it kind of it was one of those little sort of light bulb moments where I was a nothing and I was you know sitting 
and talking to guys who were earning ridiculous, you know, seven figures and um, and very well respected and well known and on television and all that kind of fun stuff. And they here they were sitting telling me that they didn't really care what the price the price didn't matter. But the valuation the valuation was irrelevant, effectively. It completely irrelevant. It was just we need an allocation. And and we've and we've decided what the allocation was ahead of actually finding out what the valuation will be. Mm. You know, completely asked backwards sort of stuff. But and um and you know it was to be fair, it was only really years later that it all sort of really clicked in for me as to what I'd actually been through, what would have gone on and 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 then looking back and reflecting on the market behaviors and the type of uh, zeitgeist, if you will, that existed and so on and so forth. So that was, for me, very sort of instructive um, period of time. Um, and anyway, so that's how I got into it. Um, and then I left um, I left the soggy island that you gentlemen kind of call home. <laughs> it's, it's, we, you know, we're currently underwater. <laughs> exactly. That's why I call it a soggy island. <laughs> yep. Um, which is weird because, you know, it doesn't actually normally rain that much there. It was one of those things where it kind of always rained, but it didn't rain a lot. You know, it's just that yeah. drizzly sort of... Atlant- Atlantic perma, perma drizzle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and it, when I first went there, it kind of stunned me that it seemed to be always been always raining, and yet the place hadn't yet submerged. Um, so I got into the, um, I, I left the place, um, find myself a young Kiwi lass who um, was far too drunk on a night in Wimbledon and figured that um, I looked good, and then I didn't let her go. And so we. Traveled back to um, New Zealand, and then I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do because there was no, there is no. I mean, there's no. Firstly, there's no people in New Zealand. So you traveled um, back for her, basically. Pretty much. I mean, we yeah. traveled extensively um, together over the years, and we hadn't quite figured out where we wanted to be in the world. But New Zealand was where she'd come from, and I figured I wanted to go and visit her family and all that fun stuff. When I got to New Zealand. I remember looking at it, saying, "What the hell? Why didn't you like? Why didn't you tell me about this place? It just it seemed like a magical paradise to me." Mm. Um, and at the time, it was about forty cents to the dollar. Real estate hadn't gone anywhere for oh, thirteen years, mm. and so um, it was quite interesting for me. Um, so I got, I built a real estate firm. Started trading real estate and then built a real estate holding company. And um, I mean, I was, I was buying these, you know, what I call blue collar type um, homes at 14 cap. Um, and rates, finance rates were six, six and a half. Um, so it was, you know, it's, I was sitting there thinking, what the hell's wrong with these people? This is, this is ridiculous. Um, why aren't, why isn't everybody doing this? Um, that's that was a some time ago, and then you know those cap rates went down to four three, and um, that was what I did for a number of years, and then in '06, I remember having a um, having a conversation with a gentleman who was considered to be a guru in the real estate market here, and he, I couldn't find anything really that made any sense anymore, and. And he um, 
he said to me, we're never, ever going to again get cash flow type real estate in New Zealand. And I thought to myself, that's a, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't tell him that to his face, you know, but it just it struck me as if this guy is saying that, and he, he was one of these gents who would get up on stage and preach and whatnot to, to other investors, I thought, well, that's here's your zeitgeist. And um, that's where that dot-com type era had um, had educated me somewhat well. So, um, and I'd, I'd actually gone up to meet him in Auckland and I was driving back home to where I live, which is about three hours south. And um, on the phone, I just started ringing up agents and I, um, I offloaded what was about 35 properties in the next four months. Um, just dumped a lot. I thought, this is fucking ridiculous and I'm, and I'm out. And I couldn't. I couldn't get anything more that made any sense. I'd kind of reached the stall process anyway. What I had was um, had gone up phenomenally, and so um, and I wasn't in any particular situation where I needed to sell. My debt levels were sub forty percent, um, but just in terms of capital allocation, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. You've already, you've already, sorry to you've, you've already touched on the, let's say the the, the dismissiveness. Uh, of, of valuations uh, experienced by some or practiced by some during the dot-com boom. It sounds like, pr- particularly from the property side of things, you, you, you've developed a fairly healthy interest in, in the behavioral, in behavioral finance. Absolutely. I think that's largely, it's, I think it's, more, it's far more important than people realize. And, and especially for guys like me who are deep value. Um, I'm just, I'm psychologically drawn to deep value. I can't help myself. Right. Is that, is that where um, you are I, now? Is, is that how you invest now? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, to follow on from that, um, at that time when I sold everything up, I looked around and, and I, I started spending a lot more time on um, sort of global economics and such like, which I'd, I'd always um, traded just my own capital, but I felt like there was going to be this shift towards um, risk, I guess. And in particular, and then and then I had a lot of friends back from you know investment banking days who were still in that space. And one of the things that struck me was the uh, the the difficulties in basically listing a company and going public, and how that had changed over the course of the previous decade. It had just become one of these situations where it was prohibitively expensive, it was prohibitively um, torturous in terms of the bureaucratic paperwork and all of that fun stuff in order to go public. And so the, the incentives to go public had diminished while the capital markets were sort of seemed to me to be shifting towards the setup where staying private um, had relative benefits that weren't previously there. Previously, you you in order to raise, you know, to to raise capital, that was why you went public. And increasingly, there was this, um, I guess, lack of a need to go public in order to raise capital. And I looked at that and I thought, okay, that combined with a risk attitude, which which I felt was going to um, going to become even um, even greater, was. The place to be was was venture capital. Um, the tail end of that would be private equity, 
And so I'd, I'd, I'd done a few angel investments and things like that, and I, I just got stuck into that place, that space. It was, it seemed like that was where the trend was shifting, and I wanted to be at the forefront of it. So I built a venture capital firm, um, small. You know, we deployed about thirty-five over the course of about five, six years, and um, and and for the most part, I got the trend right. Um, to give you an example, we would do early stage stuff like five mil pre-cap, um, you know, seed or, or, or second round seed. And um, by the time we got to 2015, I thought this is completely bloody nuts. You're the same a little, little apples to apples comparison. Those five mil pre-cap type of deals were 20. And and you realize when you when you're going into that space, you realize eighty percent of the shit's going to vaporize. It's not going anywhere, right? But you're banking on the fact that the other twenty percent of that mm, half of it might sort of limp along, and then the other, 10, you know, ten percent of it is going to moonshot for you, and you go to twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred x return, and that'll make up for all the other losses, and your aggregate return will still be. Uh, you know, commencement commensurate with a risk. But in order to do that, if you're coming in at five, you say, okay, can a five go to a hundred? Sure. You know, it's possible. Is it probable? No, but that's why you you diversify and so on and so forth. But can it like to get the same return? What's it gonna look like if you're coming in at 20? It just the numbers stop, like it just doesn't work. And so um so I sold I sold up, sold the business, um, and at the, and that's when I'd um, I teamed up with a buddy of mine who um, used to be a prop trader at a number of um, banks, and um, is also into behavioural psychology. and And we set up um, a fund at the time, which was what designed really to take advantage of capital shifts again um, part of it was all built into the whole uh, sovereign debt bubble that we still live in um, part of it was risk allocations we'd seen a lot of capital shifting towards passive um, active management getting obliterated um, and and we're at that today we're just in it at more extremes um, and so that's what we did and today we do that via um, professionally managed accounts um, and really, it's, it's if I'm going to boil it down to one thing, it's deep value. Like we're we're interested very often in all the things that nobody wants to be interested in, um, and a lot of that is around you know zeitgeist. It's there's social factors. You know, if if we're going to um, point the finger today on the on the on the extreme side of things, it's that world that I lived in of um, venture capital when the tail end of it is kind of PE. And I mean, if you think about it, the last decade, you've had institutional investors that have just been redeeming capital and dumping it into private equity. Why? It's much easier to get levered equity returns without the volatility of actually owning your public equities. You know, but the, and, and the odd thing with PE and VC is that you get this your bid ask is massively wide, but it well, doesn't really matter because you you marked a model, right? I, I was just going to say, surely the volatility is there, but because you're not marked to market on a daily basis, it seems to be invisible. Absolutely, it's 
it's like your home, okay? If on every single morning you had to get up and and sell your house, right? It's whatever whatever given participants in the market are prepared to buy your house on any and it has to sell every day, you're going to have some massive, massive wild swings in, in the actual price that it actually, that it sells for on that given day. Over time, sure, you have this this dampening of volatility, but it's it's akin to that. So you have you do have this very very wide um, volatility or, or or bid ask, which creates volatility, but it isn't seen. And so asset managers get away with with um, with basically printing. Um, and, and ignoring the volatility that is there, but you just close your eyes and pretend it's not. And that's really just gotten to the point where, it, because that suits passive. Um, and also it's um, it's gotten to the point where you can you can jimmy those numbers quite easily. And I've seen this taking place a lot. I mean, I've written quite a bit about SoftBank um, and SoftBank is really the behemoth in that particular market. Um, and we know, for example, that, you know, they sell assets to their um, to their funds. Uh, think about it like this. The three of us on this call could set up a fund, right? Go and let's say we do Series A rounds. Mm. And um, provided that we're in a bull market, which we've been in for some time, um, we can, or in fact, we can jimmy the whole thing. Let's say, let's say you got a company at I don't know ten mil pre cap. We'll come in at ten mil on this, and for the ten, instead of putting in ten million, we'll put in hmm, nine and a half. Some other joke, or put in nine. Some other joke can come in for the million. Then we can do a very small round subsequent to that at twenty, and just put in a hundred thousand or or a million. And what do we mark our book at? Well, we market at 20, so we're up 100%. But what's happened? Well, not a lot, really. I mean, maybe. Maybe the company's doing well. Maybe it's actually fucking heading catastrophically towards bankruptcy. But on the books, we look pretty good. Is it possible now that we could go out and raise fund two with those kind of numbers? Of course it is. Everybody wants a double. So you've kind of seen a lot of that taking place. Um, and we've seen a lot of fund two buying assets from fund one, right? Without getting to the weeds of all of how that works, basically, we've had um, the more egregious the, the more egregious a company can be in terms of revenue growth, also the more capital has gone in. And so it's that largely thanks to central bankers the, the that have pushed people out the risk curve. Tell me what's more further out the risk curve than venture capital. Mm. Nothing, really. Um, in the listed equity space, it's the WeWorks, sorry, not WeWork, it's the Teslas and mm. Beyond Meat and all this kind of nonsense. But in the private space, it is um, it is many of these companies which have shown the ability to grow revenues irrespective of anything, of, of, of any profitability. So OPEX is, who cares? You know, WeWork was a really good example of that. Because if you think about it, WeWork is really just a duplication of Regis' business model, mm. except it had a flamboyant bullshit artist, one Adam Newman, mm. a man who 
at any other point in history would have most likely just been a drug mule or found running a team of Nigerians sending out letters from <laughs> some recently deceased military dictator. <laughs> but not in that world, no, it's venture capital bull market. And so, you know, my hat off to him. His timing was excellent. And with the consensual hallucination of investors, they believed that, yes, we work were, and, you know, you can't make this shit up, there to elevate the world's consciousness. <laughs> Are you familiar with a guy called Scott Galloway, by the way? He he has a blog called No Mercy, No Malice, and he, he, he talks about the IT sector. Um, basically, he's, he, uh, I, 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 think, I think we all, to a certain extent, write about the markets, but his stuff about SoftBank and about WeWork is, I, I wouldn't be able to get away with it in the UK under British libel laws, but clearly the, the libel laws in the US are somewhat more relaxed. But it, it's just incredible stories, really incredible stories. Well, I mean, look, when I was doing the venture capital stuff, we had we worked with a number of VC firms in Singapore and Hong Kong and stuff. And I can't tell you how many times people were like, oh, well, SoftBank's going to come in. And that was always it, right? And SoftBank are massive. I mean, they're like, they are the behemoth. Have they got like a $100 billion vision fund? Is that right? Four, oh, sorry, $400 billion. Well, what's, what's $300 billion between France? Yeah. And, but so within context, they are so much bigger than any other player. We, we don't, you don't have that sort of divergence in any other, in, certainly in publicly listed equities. And you could take, say, BlackRock, who are a big asset allocator. But the next guys behind them are quite close, really. SoftBank are like just, they're like so far ahead of anybody else in terms of sheer size, which has allowed them to, to really swing that market. Um, but also it's one of those situations when if there, it's, you, you ask yourself, okay, who is going to take those assets off their hands? If you mm. like, who's the, who's the, who's the next, who's the next buyer? Exactly. Look, DCs exit two ways. Like the liquidity event either comes via IPO or a trade sale. Mm. That's pretty much it. Um, of course, within that space, there's been plenty PE buyouts and there's been guys selling one fund to the next fund, but it's like it's just a hot potato. And I think well, back in 2015, I thought this shit was getting crazy and I wanted it out. And, and, um, and look, 2015, I'm going to – don't quote me on this, but if I go – I remember looking at it um, when I was running the firm – when I, when in the dot com era, which was the closest that I could think of with respect to risk appetite and then allocations into um, private run businesses, call it venture capital rather than PE, because that's really more what it was. In 95, I think it was, I think there was somewhere around $2 billion that had been invested into those US markets into venture capital. Then by like 97, it had doubled. 98, you were up to about 10 billion. And then 99, it hit like 20. And you go back and you look at that and it's, it's this parabolic chart and you kind of think, oh, shit, here we go. But then in 2000, it got to like 65 billion, right? So it went from, I think it was 20. Again, don't quote me. It was about, it was about those numbers ring well in my head. It was like about 20 and 99 it went to like 65 in in 2000. 
And then, of course, that was it, game over. And back in 2015, I kind of felt like, oh, shit, yeah, we are. And it got to, I think it was 40, 40 in the US, and then it was quite a bit more globally. Um, if we look at it today, 20, I think it was 2018, it was about 50. 2019, this year that we've just passed, was 136. So, like, you had that, like, does it mean that 2020 is going to not be 250 or something? I don't know, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. My friends in the space that I talk to, they're all now screaming. I mean, the GPs are all freaking out, and the LPs are, some of them are freaking out, and and many of them are still kind of clueless because why? They're sitting there looking at their, their mark to book, and it's like, mm, it's fine, forgetting that, the vast majority of these things are just a big pile of negative cash flowing, mm. um, cash incinerating companies, which have grown as a consequence of revenues and not as a consequence of profitability. Just, just, just to ask a quick question there, GP and LP, what do they stand for? Sorry, um, general partner, limited partner. So general partner will be the guy that manages the venture capital fund and limited partner will be your investors. Right. right? So if you guys set up a fund, um, you decided to go and buy cannabis companies in the UK or something like that. Um, and I decide to invest with you. I'm your limited partner. Right. I think, I think to be fair, what we'd probably do is just cut out the middleman and buy the cannabis direct. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've touched on this already. Is, is there not a problem? Well, I think I'm going to answer my own question. Is there not a problem with the likes of SoftBank, you know, and, and pricing on this? Because I, I get this the very strong feeling that, you know, as the hundred million, hundred billion dollar, four hundred billion dollar gorilla in the room, uh, and the, the the predominant player in this space, SoftBank's basically being able to sort of mark its own homework in terms of the pricing for what it's what it's doing. Well, if you go back to oh shit, when was it? I wrote an article about this in June. I think it was May. In May they came out, and I, that's why I wrote the article. Uh, it's called Hold. Hold my beer, <laughs> and they they decided to um, go and borrow against the equity in in the Vision Fund. Right now, think about this: you've got one of the most volatile assets or basket of volatile assets that you can get on the planet. All of them, pretty much cash incinerating, and you're levering it up. <laughs> Yeah, and you go. Why would you do that? And I think one of the reasons that they done they did that was because they started to see they started to get pushback from underwriters when they because we had the Lyft IPO, we had the Uber IPO, both of them were not well received by the market. <clears throat> um, and so, how else do you get liquidity? Well, you can get liquidity by taking it out via debt. It, it means ultimately you know where that you you know where you're heading to, right? Which is not a good place, um, but it gives you it it gives you an out in the in the shorter term, and so um, so and and it allows you to to retain these fictional valuations that you've created. Um, in fact, there's there's a I met a gentleman years ago who was doing this as a anecdotal side story, but it's exactly the same thing. 
um, this guy's in the real estate that I was getting involved in. He had, he had gone and he had bought, there was a block of flats. I think there was about 12 flats, okay, and they're all identical, little two-bedroom flats. He bought I thought about four or five of them in one go. There was one person that owned them, and he bought them, all of them. And the values on them were something like $130,000 each, roughly, okay? Then he went and he started picking out the rest. He wanted the whole building, okay? So he'd buy them as they came up. And he, and he was paying 130 140 he got to the last one, the very last one, and he went to the guy and he said, I want to pay you $250,000. And the guy's like, what? Like, they're not worth it. He said, no, I no, I want to pay you $250,000. Why would you do that? So other people would think it's worth $250,000. He, he, the way that it works um, in many countries and in New Zealand, the way it works is that... If you buy something, willing buyer, willing seller, that's the value. That's what the value comes out at. You can go and get it valued by professional value, and they can tell you it's $140,000. But if you're prepared to take, pay two fifty, that's what it's worth. Mm. You can then take that valuation to the bank and say, yeah, here's the here's the last sale price, $250,000. Oh, and by the way, I've got 12 of these. Yeah. Boom. Can you then go and borrow against that? Sure. So that's basically what that's been the gig that many of these venture capitalists have been doing. That's exactly what SoftBank did back in May of last year was they jacked all these valuations. They then basically went back to the bank and said, here's the value, let us suck a bit of equity out, and they let them. So that, But what it tells you is that there's a problem there. It tells you that they couldn't get the liquidity that they had anticipated or that they wanted and then, of course, after that, wasn't that long before we had WeWork, which went from, what, 85 to 8? And really, it's not worth 8. It's not. But they, they, they came in and, you know, they had to pay something. Um, and it's, it's not a surprise that SoftBank was the only buyer um, that actually came in. If you value WeWork... In the same, we did a valuation assessment on this, and we 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 treated it like Regis. It's worth about six hundred million dollars. I think in stock in stock market terms, it's known as painting the tape, isn't it? Which is basically when you you trade you trade at artificial prices to 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 give the impression of, of a higher value than is actually sustainable. But I, by the same token, I suspect that's also illegal if you're caught out doing it. It is in the in the that's the interesting thing. Some in the public equity markets, it's illegal because they're far more regulated. Mm. In the private markets, it's still very much cowboy land. You can do whatever the hell you want. So this this sounds a little bit like the next financial one of the next financial scandals to hit. Then, in terms of uh, people being people being separated from their money, this thing is it's it's a Ponzi scheme. Much of not everything, but um, and look, I I I participated in it. I I I felt like I could see it coming. Now, I didn't expect it to get, and I wasn't out there trying to find companies that were literally going to torch money. I was trying to find the best ones. But the but you, it's, <laughs> when you're in the game, you see how this stuff's, and you, you see how it's working, and then you also know what's going to, what's going to profit for you. So I knew, for example, companies that we would fund, if they could show massive market share capture and revenue growth, They'd achieve a multi like some other freaking VC firm would come in and 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 
and pay something ridiculous for it. Like you knew it was going to happen, right? And so it changes your behavior. Um, it's not a game that you want to play for very long. Um, but we've gotten to a point where that is at very much extreme levels. Um, but it's not only in the private markets. Tesla's a perfect example. Mm. I mean, Tesla, Jimmy, all of their financials. I mean, I've never seen this kind of financial spaghetti in there that, in, that that company puts out, but they're just one of many. And the point really is that if you can show market share growth, then that's what's being rewarded. And that, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. You've had central bankers who've destroyed our ability to make money. Yield has collapsed. Mm. I mean, so so when you have no yield, there's two things that happens. One is you, you try and get returns. The second is that with that massive dampening of volatility, your perception of risk at the tail end of what is risk changes. So we've had this setup where that that extreme risk end, which is venture capital, has seen the most um, extraordinary valuations, extraordinary amount of capital gone in. And again, you've got the, that where if you're an asset allocator and you shift, you can redeem from value, you know, deep value active managers who quite frankly have struggled in a world of um, asinine valuations mm. um, and who've struggled with the, the the business model of two and twenty, right? Because how do you how do you fight an algo that that charges um, a couple of basis points? It's mm. it's very it's very difficult. And so the, that shift of capital from active management to passive has been phenomenal. Um, one of those uh, in the PE space, um, and we've seen it with shale, for example, there's an enormous amount of capital went into that. Um, so it's fed all these kind of various multiple bubbles in different places. Um, and I think possibly the next one, or it's, it's already taking off, is this, what do they call it, ESG? Yeah. Um, basically woke capitalism. Yeah. Um, which is, which, and we're quite focused on that, not on the long side. Um, you seem, you seem to imply. Uh, I sense uh, a sort of, Im- it, well, not, maybe not imminent, but an approaching moment of of doom or moment of uh, realization is is approaching. If that is the case, uh, would you care to put a timescale on how how long we're going to be entombed in this? false in this sort of Potemkin market or what, or what indeed is going to drive us out of it? Don't, you know, it's, I, I used to, I used, to, I had a feeling that, hang on a second, if we come back and we say, okay, what is the primary cause of these market behaviours? I would suggest that the primary cause of them has been central bank um, behaviour. Well, so, so central banks have effectively destroyed price discovery. Exactly. And then there's been attendant other um, knock-on consequences which take on a life of their own. But essentially, if we boil it down to one thing, that's kind of it. Um, then, and, and we've had other social type of um, zeitgeist, if you will, that has come in and it's, it's fed other things. In the West in particular, we're seeing... <sighs> We're seeing a lot of the, um, look. You guys came pretty bloody close to having Corbyn 
Like, how did that guy even get up on a stage? Yeah, it's fair, fair point. So, so, and that doesn't happen in isolation. It happens as a consequence of many things. But I, I would, tra- I would trace. Sorry to interrupt. I would trace it back quite, quite directly to exactly the measures that were taken at taken in in the, the at the height of the financial crisis. Because one of the reasons Corbyn came within a whisker of number ten is precisely the kind of rise of social inequality that that the central banks have provoked, have stoked by, you know, it's, the, it's that biblical phrase, to, to he who has, he'll be given more, and to he who hasn't, he'll, he'll get nothing. Well, if you don't have assets, you can't, you can't benefit from an asset price boom. You absolutely nailed it. You, 100%. I couldn't disagree at all. Um, and, of course, it's not just the UK. Um, we're seeing this across the Western world. And that's, there is a large – I spend a lot of time in Asia – there is a large divide socially and philosophically, larger than at any other point in, in, in my lifetime that I'm aware of. And if I look and I read a lot of history, I think, I feel like we're at, I think, I feel like we're shifting already and people haven't even seen the shift. And what I mean by that is the West and the East see things very, very differently. Um, and to give you an example, look, you guys had those frizzy head fucking dreadlocked clowns on the bridge stopping traffic. Yeah. Stink, stinky rebellion, we call them. Stinky rebellion. Yeah. I think all of us gents on this call will remember the good old days when these people existed and they chained themselves to trees and all sorts of stuff, and they were a good giggle. And we just basically wait for Plod to come along and take them away from disrupting normal people's lives. He was, he was called Swampy in the 90s. Yes. Today, they're protected and they're yeah. given a platform, the likes of the BBC and The Guardian and The Independent, to name but a few. Okay. And what they're championing for, as incoherent as it is, really is to destroy destroy everything that's, that is the foundation, what is good and prosperous, capitalism. Yeah. But that has been so distorted as a consequence of, of central bank intervention, if we go back to the GFC, and actually a little bit before it. But, and, and it's gotten to the point where they want to destroy the family unit. You know, this nonsense that babies aren't born with a gender. gender. Mm. I mean, no, like, that kind of stuff would have been laughed. Like, who would have even – you would have read that in The Onion. Yeah. Today it's, it's not mainstream media. So, and then with it you've got this whole climate hysteria – it's just one of those avenues. Um, it's really everything encompassed that that is considered woke, so to speak. And, you know, when I started writing about this, I had people responding saying, oh, you know, it's just a fad. It's like it's basically teenagers with, with green hair. Don't worry, they'll get mm-hmm. over it. And I, and I felt like, no, it's not. There's something different this time. This is not – it's not that. And now, I mean, we just had BlackRock, for example, coming out. In fact – Forget about BlackRock and their, their you know, um, desire to save the planet. Um, we have Goldman Sachs, and I don't know if you saw it, but Goldman Sachs came out suggesting or saying that they will no longer underwrite IPOs where the board of those companies yeah. is not diverse enough. This is fucking ridiculous. And look, Goldman Sachs, if we're going to be honest with each other, are literally the fucking whores of the <laughs> finance world. So for these guys to come out and, and suggest that they're not going to 
um, underwrite any IPOs. They, they're doing it for for political points, and they're doing it for. But interestingly, and this is to my earlier point, that is only being implemented by Goldman Sachs in the US and the EU. Mm. It is not implemented in Asia because they'd yeah. be laughed out the boardroom door in Asia. Mm. They, they don't care. I speak to people there all the time. They, they, they cannot understand this whole um, diversity type setup. They just they don't get it. They don't understand what the hell it's all about. Do you think um, a good bear market would shake everybody out of this mentality? Um, there's two ways that it could go. It could drive it more. Really? To give you an example, think about, so we're very focused on energy. Okay. Think about what Germany's done. Germany has been the quote unquote leader in alternative energy. They got rid of all their nuclear, which is completely ridiculous, but they did. Um, and they, they now have the highest electricity costs in all of Europe. <laughs> they import, and you couldn't make this shit up, they import the energy from France, which is nuclear, <laughs> and from Russia. <laughs> and and you, you, could, you could, and on top of that, their carbon emissions have gone up. You see, here's the dirty little secret with renewables it's not so much the initial impact, it's the long-standing impact. So if you're going to have a, a, one of these big wind turbines, they're made out of bloody graphite. Graphite does not decompose. Yeah, they so were what, saying you, you can't recycle them. Or it's look, hard to. It's very, very difficult to. The other thing is in terms of density, the world has never, ever gone from a more energy dense medium to a less energy dense medium. When we went from wood to coal, we were going to more energy dense medium. Then we went from coal to natty gas and oil and nuclear, more energy dense. Nuclear is the, the, the highest energy density um, uh, medium that we have. Now what is currently being propositioned to us, and it's it's not just from a bunch of Green head, um, clowns, tattooed girls, worried about polar bears. This is all coming from the top. Is that we're going to transition, and within a time frame that is quite startling. In Britain, it's I think twenty thirty. They're suggesting that like fifty percent of the cars on the road are going to be actually electric vehicles. Um, now there's a professor. At the London's Natural History Museum, was it Herring, Herrington? I think Professor Herrington. Um, anyway, there was a professor there who put forward um, a letter to the UK Committee for Climate Change um, after doing getting his team of researchers and they analysed um, what what it would take to meet these objectives that the government had already stepped up and said, we're going to take. And he said, okay, if we're to meet these objectives that have already been stated, what do we actually need? And they looked purely at Britain. They didn't look at, any, at Europe or the US or Canada or any of these other countries and their impact on commodity markets. And what they found 
was that in terms of cobalt, to meet these objectives, they would need to use up 200% of global production from 2018. Lithium was about 70% of global production. Um, copper was 50% of global production. Again, this is just Britain, like just Britain. It's pretending that the rest of the world won't require any of these uh, resources, right? So it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Not without, well, if if that was true and we were going, if by 2030 Britain was going to meet their objectives, and remember the rest of the world's all going down the same woke path saying, oh, we're going to do it too. If that was going to happen, wouldn't we be seeing prices of these resources that would be required to make that happen? Adjusting, pull up a pull up a chart of copper, pull up a chart of nickel, and and you like you scratch your head because you go, oh well, that's not it's not going to happen, and that doesn't even take into account the electricity that would be required because the grid is not set up to actually handle this. Fine, let's just assume that aliens dropped these materials on Earth and we could get all these batteries and everything else and everybody's driving around in a Tesla, um, how are we going to charge them? We don't have the grid set up to actually do that. So then you would think, okay, well, there should be a lot of CapEx going into um, power generation and there's nothing. So, so, so the flip side is saying, okay, well, if we're not going down that path, then what are the other paths? The other paths are what we've been using, fossil fuel. And the capex into that has been absolutely decimated and and increasingly so. So we've just had BlackRock coming out saying, no, we're not going to do any coal, you know. And so that's where I see this divergence. You're, ma- you're making it, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Chris, you're making it sound like there's a buyer's strike going on in everything. There, look, it's this, it's this cognitive dissonance. Either we're going to go down the renewable path, which again, never in mankind's history have we ever gone from a more energy dense medium to a less energy dense medium, right? We, it's like us going back to burning wood. Well, we we have had sporadic witch hunts throughout history. Well, unless, look, unless we're unless we're all going down the Venezuelan path because that's what they're doing, burning wood. If if and you've eating grass, I don't know if you've got um, Netflix over there, but if you've seen, there's a documentary uh, about Bill Gates. That I've mentioned a few times on the podcast for for very good reasons, really. Um, part of what Bill Gates has been doing is is fascinating, but one of the most important parts of it, if you haven't seen it, then I'd suggest you you know everybody should watch it because it's fascinating. The um, the at the, the end of it, he he basically has spent his resources, his his ideas. He's got the best people in the world to solve the energy crisis and what he's what he's come up with is there's somewhere in america there are these huge tankers of of um, spent uranium which is basically radioactive shit that you've got to send off into space it's you can't do anything with it it's it's like it's toxic it's awful there's nothing you can do with it apart from get rid of it and they don't know what to do with it so they just pile it up He's created a nuclear reactor that burns that stuff. And not only does it burn it, it burns it safely. So 
what I learned from the Chernobyl disaster, apart from the fact that the series was fantastic, and apart from the fact that you realise how close we came to a massive, massive catastrophe across Europe, but aside from all of those things, if you were to look at how a nuclear power plant runs at the moment, most of them, I guess, I don't know all of them, but the way they were designed before, you have to call them. In order to call them, you need a generator. In order to run that generator, you need fuel. If you have a situation where that fuel is interrupted, like a tsunami, then the nuclear reactor goes into meltdown because it's, it needs to be constantly cooled. And that's, that is the, the uh, aside from what was wrong with the Chernobyl reactor, that's the main problem with reactor, reactor design. You've, if you have a failure in the turbine, if, if the bloody thing doesn't start, then you're going to go into overdrive and it's going to go into meltdown and you can't cool it. And it's like knowing how nuclear reactors work, it just gets worse and worse and worse. But he's designed something that works in the opposite way. It's a bit like lighting a candle and it just burns and you don't need to add anything else to it. So it's safe. And so he tried to get the US government to commission these, these reactors. And of course, they said no. So he went to China to try to get them to do it. And they were interested. And then the trade war put an end to it. So now, now I don't believe that there is an, is an energy crisis. Now I think it's all bullshit. Because if there really was one, we would commission one tomorrow. We've got the technology. He's got the technology. He's got the money. He's done the research. He's giving it away. He doesn't want it. He's got billions. He doesn't care. So why can't we just build some of these? They're safe. There's nothing wrong with them. But it's, they, it sounds like vested, vested interests are, are, are combining to intervene. I remember, I don't know if you ever read, uh, either of you read 2000 AD, the comic, but I remember reading it in the 70s and 80s, and there was a, there was a, a one-off strip about a guy who goes to a, another planet and he gets he gets like a sort of attacked by a kind of benign version of the alien, which is a little flower, and the flower sort of attaches it to him. And it turns out this flower can can cure the cold, can cure the common cold. He had a cold when he went there, and the, this flower um, cured him of it. So he took it back back to Earth, and then of course all the all the pharmaceutical companies basically prevented him from ever using it because they were making far too much money selling um, paracetamol and aspirin and Rennie and you know cold cures. If, if you had a um, what's the word? Um, uh, a technology that was genuinely, um, you know, a proper challenger thing. It would be it would be squashed by the likes of Ford and General Motors and now Tesla, wouldn't it? But th there's there's also another. There was another great documentary called "What Killed the Electric Car," and in California, in early two thousand, they created GM created an electric car that everybody loved, but you couldn't buy it. They wouldn't let you buy it, and actually, it got banned. But it was a fantastic car. And it, it speaks to that point that you make. But what I don't quite understand about all of this is, and maybe, Chris, you've got a better handle on it, um, why is it that we are now, now being forced to give up our petrol vehicles for electric vehicles? What possible reason could we have to do that? How does that, that how does that, like, if there is this this conspiracy to make us use the most expensive fuel out there, then how not, does that how I'm does not, that help them? I'm not convinced there's a conspiracy. I yeah. think okay. 
I think if if we go back and <clears throat> one of the things that um, I've got a friend um, in South Africa, and um, he well, he's not he's no longer there, but he was. And one of the things in his business that he does, and he does it for large global corporations, is <clears throat> identifying political trends. He works for like a um, it's a it's a political consulting um, firm. And one of the key things that he always looked at, um, and his focus has been on South Africa, was what takes place in the universities and what, what, whether there's anything that's, that's beginning to kind of gain a foothold, if you will. And the thinking goes like this. If you have sufficient um, tipping point, if you will, at, a, at that level, those are the people who within the next decade will be in positions of power. And so their thinking matters and the way that they um, the, the way that they um, view the world matters. Um, and he made it uh, was probably 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago now, he made an interesting observation to me with what, what was taking place in the universities in South Africa. And it was not good. Um, it was essentially Marxism. Um, and if we look at what's happened subsequently um, with respect to taking away farmers from white-owned farmers and things of that nature, it's it makes perfect sense. And you can see the you can see that um, that Zed guy's playing itself out. Um, if you look at what's been happening in universities across the Western world, um, we're seeing that now with this sort of woke capitalism type of scenario. Part of it is a, a, a rebellion against anything that existed, really, um, which is why white males are at the top of that pinnacle um, in terms of you know, those that would be attacked. Um, that, that's a good but, point you make there, by the way, about white males being attacked. If, you, if they did a study on Twitter to find out the most um, you know, abused people, and they are white males by... By looking at all the comments so you look at all the different genders out there and all the different races it's it's white males and i that surprised me actually yeah and so that's and that's been taking you know you, you have what i would call cultural marxists and they now inhabit the um uh, the educational um higher education systems um and so what they preach and what they, how they think, um, it's like a virus. So everybody that comes out of that is infected with that and they come out with these ideologies. Um, well, you, you, come out with the BB, you come out with the BBC, The Guardian, The Independent and uh, the School of Economics. Exactly. I mean, there was um, <laughs> there was um, – I can't remember the gent's name. He's got a, a Twitter handle, Titania McGrath, which is actually a British... Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle, that's the one. Um, he wrote an article for The Independent, which was... He submitted it as a, um, I don't know, Liam Gallagher or Liam someone or another, like a person who didn't exist, had absolutely no um, background... And really, he wrote what he thought they wanted to hear, and he made it really outrageous. It was just a, um, it was a, he was trolling them, 
And it was all about the fact that comedians should not be allowed to have free speech um, where it where it uh, affects disadvantaged, you know, people of ethnicity, if you will. And and when you read it, it's it's like it was laughable, right? Um, but he wrote it in such a fashion that it could be accepted. It wasn't complete onion, right? And they bloody published the thing, um, which just pointed out, you know, that there's there's if if you if you agree with their ideology, um, they'll publish anything, whether it's true or not. So facts don't matter. But um, if, but we've got a situation in certainly in in the western world where capitalism seems to seems to reign supreme so i can't imagine big business just sort of rolling over and because a few you know major newspapers seem to print sort of negative comments about about their businesses i don't think they really care they'll just move ahead i think it's insidious and it's look i was chatting to um a buddy of mine in new york the other day um, he's at JP Morgan. They have to, on a weekly basis, have diversity meetings. They sit down and they go around the table and everybody says, I am so-and-so, I would like to be referred to as... No way. Come on. Really? Yep. No. Yep. 100%. This is happening. It's happening. What? And, what? It's and everybody, on. like, you know... Talib, Nassim Talib has written about this before. It's the, what does he call it? Um, well, Gram, Grams, Gramsci called it the long march through the institutions. No, he was, what well, What he called, I'm trying to think of the name now. It's the the intolerant, even oh, if yes. they're a, yes. a minority, will yes. rule. And yes, he gives yes. the example of someone with, say, peanut allergies. Yes, I've So you've got that, a class yeah. of 30 kids with, with, that are at school. One of them has got a peanut allergy nobody's allowed peanuts, right? So the intolerant minority dictate. That's yes. the dictatorship of the intolerant minority. It's a good phrase, good phrase, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant piece. I think you can find it on, people can find it on Medium. It's, a, it's in his and, latest book. Yeah, it's it's really yeah. interesting because he, he relates it it's, to religions as well, which is, which is also fascinating because if you look at the, if you look at the Jewish religion, for example, you're Jewish by your by the mother, but if you look at the Muslim religion, you can never revert back from the Muslim religion, which means that it over time will will always grow. So it's for that for that very reason um, that it's dominant. So it's a very good point. The intolerant will always dictate. So I think he gave the example of kosher. He was at a party, wasn't he? And he was halal. saying he talks about halal as well. Yeah. So he, yeah. he he was at a party and and um, he he hadn't even noticed that on I think on on some of the drinks there was this little stamp to say that it was kosher and so everybody just has to move to kosher drinks because the people who don't have kosher drinks don't care but the people who obviously are in the minority that do care it's it's make or break so if you're going to cater for them you have to a have no nuts there because of allergies and b you've got to have kosher stuff so it's it's yeah it's a good point you see you see something similar in advertising at the moment so i don't know if you i don't know what what advertising you have uh or say on tv chris but here in the uk if you if, i'm not that i you know I, I make a beeline out of the room as soon as the ads come on but in, if i am inadvertently exposed to tv advertising 
Um, whatever the product is, it'll be a mixed race couple or a lesbian couple or and and I was discussing this with my fiance the other day, and she, she made a valid point, which is for most people they don't care, but for the people who do care, they care a lot. So yes, it's just cheaper for the advertisers to have the the so the no the, the 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 lesbian couple or whatever because you just you, you reach the same audience, but without offending the people who get easily offended about these things. That's exactly it. It's like you know the 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 freak that wants to be identified as non-binary two-spirit is supremely offended if 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 they're not identified as that and you call them a bloke or a lass, you know. Mm. And so most people go, oh, fuck it, I can't really be bothered, you know. You yeah. just put up with her or it or him <laughs> or whatever they. it is. They. And, yeah. and so that's why you and, – and again, you've now got it at – um, large institutions like JP Morgan, where they're sitting around, they're wasting valuable time going through this nonsense of what somebody identifies as. Um, so it's a pervasive thing, but it is exactly what Talib talks about, which is the intolerance of the minority that are ruling. But why do, so, why do they even bring it up? I mean, it's like nobody's ever said, can I call you a man? You know, so why, why would we have to, or a woman? So why can't I just call you by your name? I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely Look, it's, ridiculous. It's such a waste people, of time. Psychologically, we are all um, we're all attracted to power. Now, you can get power by a number of different ways. I can persuade you guys, right, and that can give me power to whatever. I don't know. I might persuade you to to vote for you, to vote for me, or to um, invest in my fund, or whatever the fuck it is. Okay. That's one way to do it. The other way, if I'm pretty duck bloody useless, is that I can coerce you, right? And so that what we've got here is literally the weakest of society who don't have the ability because of skills to get what they want that are, um, that are coercive. And they want society to bend to themselves, which is, look, it's... And this is where I come back to what I was mentioning before. There's a distinctive divide between the West and the East. We've seen this in there's a, a, a legal case in the US where they um, there's if you're a, if you're a minority, they're saying, well, okay, um, admittance admittance into universities should be based on you know um, minorities. Or, or, you know, a, a an equal distribution, which is insane, but this is what's taking place. Um, and then what they found was that the overwhelming majority of these people actually getting into these um, uh, higher education um, establishments as a consequence of their marks and their skills were Asians. And they were like, oh, fuck, hang on a second. We can't do that because clearly they're minorities. Like, you can't pretend that if you're a Korean or something in, in the U.S. that you're not a minority. And so they then um, basically eliminated them and said, no, well, um, they're, they basically got treated in the same way as white males. And there was a whole court case about it. Um, but, but the issue there is that um, in, in the West, we have this, this culture of um, – What's the word I'm looking for? It's a culture of it's a culture of servitude, I guess. Um, but 
if you are if you can prove that in you are in any way shape or form um disadvantaged victimhood victimhood it's victimhood that's the word victimhood perfect it's a culture of victimhood if you can prove that you have been victimized in some shape or form it gives you power now uh, again i spend a lot of time in the east nobody gives a shit like there's no none of this victimhood stuff it's like they just get up and they just do what they got to do is there racism? Absolutely. The Chinese think they're far better than everybody else. The Singaporeans think the Indonesians are all fucking useless. The the Indonesians think the Filipinos are even more useless. Like it's they're all racist against each other. They've fucking been fighting with each other for centuries, just as the Europeans fought with each other for centuries. And the Germans think they're better than the Italians, and so on and so forth. Um, but and you're not going to change that. Tribalism is literally part of. Uh, um, a social makeup mm. and so but they just get on with it and they trade with one another and they don't force each other as a consequence of any of these either real or imagined um uh grievances and if you look at the world that has the least amount of real racism it is the west it is the place where you have the highest ability to strive and get what you want, irrespective of what you look like or what ethnicity you have. It is why um, many people have gone to the US or why Africans um, and Middle Easterns go to Britain because you can go in there. No one cares. You can you can go and set up your shop and sell whatever the hell you want. Um, it's, you know, whereas... If the three of us gents decided to go and set up a, sh uh, a shop in Riyadh, we'd probably have a more difficult time. And so it's it's kind of this weird setup where <clears throat> um, you have people that have got the most that are saying that they have the least. Um, but it's what it comes back to is the ability to exert coercion and power over another human being without doing too much for it. And if you can use victimhood as a as a uh, a leveraged tool to do that, then you will. And that's what, and the, that's fine when we always used to look at that and go, shut up, that's nonsense. Go back to work and just, you know, if you want something, work hard for it. Um, but we're not in that situation now. It's, it's a situation where, again, if the three of us wanted to list our company with Goldman Sachs, we couldn't do it. We need to have a tribe-by-gendery fucking black pink woman on the board otherwise we're not going to get there but I, so, I i still maintain this has got to be because of the the environment that we're in at the moment in terms of we're at the top of a, or close to the top of a massive bull market where all this money has been pumped into the system i mean a good old you know 30 40 percent crash will start to change a lot of those views They've got to, because you, you can't you can't sustain that nonsense when it's all right if everybody's making a ton of money, nobody really cares. But when things start to go down, that's the first thing that goes out the window. You know, so you're, you're saying, saying so, you're, so you walk into the dealing room and there's blood on the streets and someone says, I'm sorry, uh, you know, I'm offended by the way you've just referred to me. And they just say, get the fuck out. You know, get, we don't care. We'll fire so, you tomorrow. So you're saying that wokeness is like the hemline indicator. Yeah, it's got to be. I, I just can't. This, these are these have got to be. I mean, look, there there are progress in many things in in this world, and one of the great things is there is a a move towards more 
opportunities for everybody. And then it's the the choice of those people to take it. So there's no reason why a board of white males should stop a woman taking a job. You know, that's wrong. But that's not what we're talking about here. If she's got no. the ability, she should get that job. Now, that doesn't matter whether she is white, black, Asian, whatever. She, you know, or, or if there was a man who could do the job, he should do it. But if there is, if if there has been, which there has been in the past, a predominantly male business that has for no apparent reason blocked other women getting in, but blocked women getting in, that's definitely wrong. So we've progressed. That's that's fine. But if you if you start to say, look, you you can't have a makeup of a company properly unless you have a diverse mix of people. Well, who decides? Well, look, it's just reverse who, racism. Well, who, who? Well, just just if we if we think about what that statement means, what who decides? Who decides what and, is? And how well, deep, and, and, do, how and, deep and, do you go? And and exactly. Do, and how far do you, do you go? And, and so good, I might say. To... So I might say. Um, okay, so you need. So what do we need? We need what? A black, an Asian. Okay, but hang on. Why not a Puerto Rican and a Chinese person? And what not Pakistani yeah. and and an Indian and somebody and, blind and, and somebody and, deaf. You saw this in the NHS uh, a few weeks ago. There was a there was a lady that got hired despite the fact she was blind and deaf, and so she, so I think she needs two separate workers to work with her. And you think this is just fucking ridiculous? I mean, it, um, it is absolutely. Look again, it's like for opportunities for people who are disabled. If so, if you are great at your job, but you can't get up the stairs because there's there's nothing in that in the bank or the place where you want to work that allows you to get in there. That's clearly wrong. But you don't start employing people for the sake of it just to tick a bloody box. It is just insane. It's absolutely insane. And you could only you could only tolerate something like that, or you could only promote it or actively have the luxury to allow it to continue if you're making so much money that you just don't care. You know, and I But I think you you mentioned something there. You said the luxury to have that. I think that we've got, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing this largely in countries which have a social safety net. And and guess what? You, you're most unlikely to find people using victimhood in Cyprus. Why? Because it's not going to work. No one cares. They're too busy trying to make sure that they don't starve. I mean, so I, I would also say that there society, are people in society who need who need help. You know, and I, I, I fully accept that. You know, there are people who are vulnerable that do need help. And there is there should be a level of a safety net. You know, there are people who, who are mentally not unwell or, or, you know, they've been abused or whatever it might be. And, you know, there is a level of society that does need help. So I'm, I wouldn't say, I'd say no safety net is dangerous. But I also think a safety net to a point, um, it, it depends how far you go with it. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, what the way that I look at this is is more where you're looking at um, an aquarium with fish swimming around in it. We have what we have. I'm not trying to say what should be. What look what what you and I think should it should look like and what that balance should look like doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because we're not going to get it, and because societies go through cycles and trends, and they're going to happen largely irrespective of what you and I think. So I, when I think about why it is that we have this situation today, 
I think largely it's because we have this social setup which allows for people, whether it's true or not, to believe they have a social safety net. And that's where I think it's very important. You, Tim, you mentioned, is there some catastrophic thing coming? Um, look, when we have a downturn, and it's possible that this that we're in the midst of that now, if this virus thing lasts for a wee bit longer than one than the markets anticipate, mm. um, injections of liquidity are only going to make those who hold equities um, richer. But it doesn't change the fact from the guy who now no longer can make payroll or can no longer make rent payments. Um, and that's where I think we're going to have, and I, I was. I believe this was coming well before zombie flu hit the planet. I think we're going to have fiscal. We've had monetary um, stimulus for decade, over a decade. Um, and it's caused, people say there's no inflation. I think that's nonsense. I think there's been enormous inflation. It's just been in the stock market. Um, where where it's going to change and it's going to be, become very politically feasible to do so is to institute fiscal spending. That in itself, I, I, I cannot fathom how it's not going to be inflationary because in order to build airports, highways, bridges, we're going to need real physical goods. We're going to need energy. We're going to need coal, copper, you name it. Interestingly, all things which are at historical lows relative to um, equities, NASDAQ, S&P, um, Nikkei, whatever you have it. And so in that environment, also what it does for um, government balance sheets is it puts them in a, in a greater quandary, which then puts that whole social safety net that we, that people believe exists in serious question, um, when that cracks, then you have a problem. I think that the, the flow through you said, oh, well, Paul, you mentioned, is this something that can actually, you know, correct itself with a decent hard uh, recession? Here's my counter to that. When your green-haired, frizzy-haired girl who pumps coffee at Starbucks can no longer afford an avocado toast, I think she just blames the billionaires. We're already seeing that take place. Um, I think it's possible that, I don't know if it's probable, but I think it's possible that we get pushed further down that insanity curve, not away from it. The call, again, if you think about um, being in a situation where you've lost your job, et cetera, that fiscal spending call um, and it'll probably just be free giveaways at the start because it's easy to distribute capital like that, but ultimately it'll be put people to work. That um, That's something that an uneducated, economically illiterate society who cannot make rent will absolutely love. I had always felt like Donald Trump, for example, would, make, would win the next elections. And I think he's a buffoon, by the way, but then um, they're all clowns. I wonder whether that will take place. If we have a significant downturn, then the likes of Warren and Sanders and their call um, to solve people's problems could actually become um, 
something that that um, a certain amount of the population swing to, and then we've got socialist Marxists in power there. Um, well, I think I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm seeing a growing number of highly intelligent, highly informed commentators in the financial sector talking about the the likely the growing likelihood of MMT, modern monetary theory, being being unleashed. And the, there's a letter to the FT that I, I've used several times now in the, in the commentaries that I've put out. This one's from November 2014, and it says, Sir, Adair Turner suggests some, for, some version of monetary financing is the only way to break Japan, Japan's deflation and deal with a debt overhang. This was precisely how Korikiyo Takahashi, Japanese finance minister from 1931 to 1936, broke the deflation of the 1930s. The policy was discredited because of the hyperinflation that followed. And I just love the way it's sort of casually, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's sort of, you know, it worked. But yeah, there was some, some inflate, hyperinflation. It's like there's a, there's a line in uh, Aliens where he says, yeah, there was a there was an incident and a few deaths, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> Iro- ironic understatement. But I mean, because I, I first heard this uh, from, you know, I've mentioned it several times now, the Money Week Investor Conference. Money Week magazine here in the UK had an investor conference in November. And a panel including James Ferguson, an economist, Julian Tett of the FT, and Daniel Hannan, a Brexit, Brexit god, um, all, all came to the conclusion that MMT was on, on its way. And that was then followed by Russell Napier, who's one of my favorite analysts. And he was saying the same thing. And it's looking like, actually, it looks more like EU is going to have it first, because the EU is in the most parlous state, but uh, not least in terms of its banking sector. But... Get a load if you, if you thought QE was inflationary. Get a load of what MMT is going to do. Oh my God! It, look, if you go back and you have a look at what took place post GFC, we had all the stimulus from around the world. If you want to know what MMT looks like, you don't need to look much further than China. China basically instituted fiscal. Everybody else went down monetary. They just built shit. They built these ghost towns and everything yeah. else. Um, they managed to do that because the inflationary impact of that was largely sucked up as a consequence of all the other central banks doing monetary. And so it was like lessened um, the, the, that impact and because they're an exporting nation. Um, but if this time around, we don't have that fallback. Um, it just So we, and, I, and I, I'm really not the doomsday um, scaremongering kind of, um, guy, but <laughs> there is a an, a non-zero chance that we can go from a current state of fairly benign, um, quote-unquote, deflationary environment to one which is inflationary and then hyperinflationary very, very quickly, far more quickly than anybody anticipates. It's funny how human beings look at linear, they, they take existing last few years and they use those linear assumptions to figure out what's going to take place in the future. Um, and it's only on the rare occasion that that really becomes a problem. So the question is, are we at one of those rare occasions? Do, do, you, know, um, do you know this guy, Professor, he died a few years ago, Professor Albert Bartlett? No. He's a professor, I think, of physics. Um, at, he was a professor of physics at the University of um, Colorado at Boulder. And he has the most amazing presentation on YouTube, which is called Arithmetic, Population and Energy, which sounds boring, but is extremely interesting. But his, his entire point, and he gave this presentation several thousand times during his career, 
a single biggest point is that mankind's biggest failure is our inability to understand the power of the exponential function, the, the power of compound interest, effectively. You know what? I, I, now that you mention that, I have, I have seen that, and he talks about um, a, a jar filling. A jar, yeah, a, 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 bottle, a bottle full of amoeba, exactly. Yes, yes. It's a terrific, it's a terrific presentation. It's, yeah. Do you want to tell for the benefit of the, I, I know it as well, but do you want to say what it is for the benefit of the listeners, Tim? Oh, I, Chris, I, I'm happy to let Chris do it if you want. It's really just the, um, if you put, what's it, like a drop of water into, into a jar and you say, okay, let's double it, and you put another drop, it doesn't, it doesn't have a real impact. It slowly sort of fills up, but then you get to say 10 drops and 10 is 20 and then 40 and it just it, it gets it's it's that exponential curve which is unstoppable because the, the the thought experiment that he that he that he uses is you've got a, a an empty wine bottle and at 11 o'clock the it's empty by one amoeba and at 12 o'clock it's completely full of amoeba and the doubling time in other words the time it takes to go from one to two to four is a minute so the question he raises is at what time is the bottle half full and the answer is one minute to twelve. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, um, I I go to the gym every day. One of the um, exercises, you know, depending on what I'm doing, is um, you do push-ups and burpees, and the exercise starts off where you do ten, okay, but you do you go down, you do one push-up, and then one burpee, and then you do two, and then and then you do three. And in your mind, when you get to five, you kind of think I'm halfway there. But you're not because you've just done one and then I you've done you two. I know what you, you mean. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and so and then it's your halfway point is actually um, when you're at like eight, eight and a half. I always do 10 two. down to one. That's a better way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, but if you, do it the other, if you do it the other way, yeah. you, you, it's, it's the same thing. <clears throat> um, so... Yeah, look, I mean, we've got we, we, there's there's some significant um, issues. I, I think the one thing that that strikes me really is this big um, divergence between what's taking place in the West and the East, both socially, um, both politically, um, and and we can see it, for example, in um, you know one of the things we've been investing and looking at is coal. Um, it's the hate. I mean, it's the, it is the devil. Um, and, you know, Australia just came out. They're going to shut their six remaining um, coal plants, coal power stations, in order to save the world. While that's happening, and this has been, you know, we've had Germany, for example, and, um, well, across the West, there's been this, this pullback in terms of coal. I'm just going to use coal as an example, but we've, we've had it across the fossil fuel space. Um, while that's happening, <clears throat> Turkey has 56 plants and is building 93 more. <laughs> um, India has 589 plants and is building 446 more. Philippines is 19 and is building 60 more. South Korea is 58 and is building 26 more. China, Japan, 90 and is building 45 more, which is actually a bit of a shame because they went down the coal 
as opposed to nuclear when when they had Fukushima. China has 2,363 plants and is building 1,171 more. So when you think about that and then you think about um, where is that going to come from? Like the West, the cap, the capital in the world has been largely focused in the West. It's sitting there, and it's not going into coal, for example. And if you um, if you care to go and have a look at some of the coal companies, you've got these guys that are no debt, they are printing money, they can self finance. There's one company we've been focused on that is buying back. They can buy back over the next year all of their stock um, and and they're not doing it with debt it's not a buyback where they they're taking on debt it's pure cash flow um, and they can do so while still printing a seven percent divvy think about that show me a business that can print a seven percent divvy and over the course of the next 12 months buy back all of their outstanding equity with no debt. So you go, how the fuck do you get to a situation like that? And, and you know, you probably wake up next morning and it's going to be, a, the stock will be even cheaper. It's just one of those things. Um, there's this sort of, the long, it comes back to what we were talking about before, where there's this idea that we're going to go down the renewables woke path and um, and we won't need fossil fuels and so on and so forth. That's largely a Western phenomenon, and it's largely Western capital that's actually moving into that space. If you guys pull up a chart of the, I call it the woke ETF. What's it called? ESG. I think it's the iShares. Um, is it ESGI or something? Um, there's a couple of them. G G R E T A, presumably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that would be the ticker. There's there's two of them. And if you look at the capital flows into these things, it is unbelievable. In fact, Tesla, if you look at what, one of the reasons why Tesla went from 340 to, what was it, 980, um, people, there was a lot of commentary that it was Robin Hood, you know, retail investors and all. I don't really think that was, I think they, they were participating, sure. I think what took place was institutional capital um, that was moving into the ESG theme. And guess where? If you look at the number of ETFs that Tesla sits in, like if you were, if we were all to set up a um, a woke ETF, we'd have to own Tesla. We would. It doesn't really matter whether it's profitable or not. And so um, we've, we've, there's been a big amount of capital just being sucked out of um, many of these other sectors and gone into things that are unprofitable. Um, while at the same time, the West is, the, the East is just, they're not buying it. They're just not interested. Um, they're not going down that path. So on a longer term time frame, I, I feel like we are, unfortunately, because um, it's not my heritage, I feel like that's where the political and economic power is shifting to and in front of my eyes and I look at it and I've got kids and um, and and I want them to basically be prepared that that's what the world is likely to look like in 20 years time um, and 
it's it's just that the the value destruction in the West as a consequence. Again, you come come back to J.P. Morgan. These guys sitting around, dicking about, figuring out what Sally. Because Sally has now found herself a penis, wants to be called Harry. Like while they're doing that, the East is just productive. They just they're just doing what they need to do. Um, but and this is happening at scale. Um, so that's my. That's my little rant, I guess, in terms of um, <laughs> things that are taking place there. But um, I don't really know where it all goes. I do know that um, it's going it's to be fun finding out. Yeah. So as you as you invest and, and you look around for for opportunities, how how many sort of stocks would you be looking to hold in your portfolio, and and where do you cast your net? Do you is it just wherever there's an opportunity, or do you prefer to to stick in a particular region? We we um, were more sector oriented than equity oriented in terms of. I like to look for what what I've managed to do for the most part is identify trends in in various sectors and then figure out how to how to play in those. Um, venture capital was the previous one. Um, and and for the most part, that I got it right. I think I got out a bit too early. Um, but you know what that saying is, better better uh, an hour too early than a moment too late. So, so we look at sectors. We look at um, uh, we'll look at anything, currencies, bonds, you name it. At the moment, we're mostly focused on um, deep value stuff where we just it can't go away, right? So if you think about sectors that are not going to go away, um, shipping has been one of them. <clears throat> um, the fossil fuels place uh, space is very very interesting to us um, because things like coal are not going to go away, despite what Greta says, um, and. And that's where you typically find these asymmetric value setups. Um, and then the way that we will deploy accordingly is to find something that's just not going to go away. So where we can, we'll find companies that don't have any debt or very um, termed out debt that's very manageable, strong cash flows. You know, the t- typical kind of Benjamin Graham type of um, you know, structural um, integrity of a, of a business. Um, and... And then we, you know, we'll take fairly small position sizes across multiple sectors. I like to not have one of the things that I think hurts most asset managers is is turnovers, churn. So we want to have portfolios where we don't we don't do much at all. You know, um, we we will take a position, have the ability to ride any sorts of volatility. And remember, volatility is really a consequence of the amount of liquidity often. So when you have the bottom in many sectors, um, there's less participants. That means there's greater volatility. If you look at shipping, for example, there's there are no analysts covering shipping. In fact, there's many finance companies now that won't, they won't finance shipping at all. 
Um, and that's not a cheap business. It's extremely capital intensive. Touching on the behavioral aspect of this, because you mentioned deep value, and deep value is inherently a kind of contrarian strategy. And contrarian investing is extremely difficult to practice. There's a superb quote that's, that's attributed to Joseph Campbell, who's a, a writer on mythologies. And the, the, the quote is, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Which I always thought was a wonderful, wonderful way of putting it. it. You have to embrace that. You, and, 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 not, and not only that, you also have to, you, your investors have to embrace it as well. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of managing investor expectations. It's half the battle. Yeah. Yes. Look, I mean, any of our private clients that come in, we we we're extremely. In fact, our pitch deck is literally: this is what we don't do. We don't do this. We can't do this. We can't do that. We make it very, very explicit around what you're not going to get and what and and why this would not be for you. <clears throat> um, and but in terms of managing, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of managing. Um, that yourself. Look, the, the greatest risk is often what's going on between your ears. Mm. Um, if you buy something that you know is not going to go away, that you know will be required 10 years hence, um, and is at trading at half book, then you have the ability, and, and again, if you're position-sized, it's such that it's not overly, um, overly too large in your portfolio, then when it gets cut in half, and it can, not because there's anything wrong with the business, but because some ETF just closed because the woke capital has gone elsewhere, um, you have the ability to go, hmm, okay, that's interesting, and maybe take a, take a, a bigger position mm. or just sit in it and go, that's all right. That's what happens <clears throat> at the bottom of markets, and that's what you have to be most people want to have that 5x return, but they they don't understand what it takes to actually get that 5x return, which is why they will chase nonsense like Tesla because they see it doubling. And they, they don't realize that that thing actually just hemorrhages cash flows. Now, does it mean it goes away? I don't know. I do know that it's an unprofitable business with extremely questionable business practices and financial accounting that is complete utter garbage so um but who knows um and really that's that's the way i guess that we we go about managing that risk so that you've got these multiple positions where you can just not really care um i don't look at them every day i mean i just i don't i don't want to have to um because i know like nothing's going to have changed with the business from yesterday to to today if the stock price has moved, so be it. What well, what other sectors are you finding uh, of interest? So you talked about fossil fuels and coal. Are there any others? There's, you know, the whole. Uh, there are. There's um, one of our theses has been um, more from a capital flows perspective, um, dollar strength. So we've been long the dollar. Um, there's many pundits out there who are screaming that the dollar is going to die and so on and so forth. I, I would suggest that everything is a relative. Um, if, if you look at the dollar index, the half of it is the euro. So if you are bearish the dollar, you're basically bullish the euro. Um, 
And people go, oh, no, no, I'm not bullish to euro. Oh, okay. Well, you're bearish to dollar, though. Yes. And I'm bearish to euro. Yes. Okay. Uh, does that mean that you you like the yen? Oh, hell no, no, no. I don't like the yen either. And you go, like, do you understand what you're saying? <laughs> it doesn't, it, it can't be all of those. Um, if you're an asset manager and you want to allocate on a currency basis and you don't want, um, let's say you want Norwegian krona, but you're a large capital allocator. I've got a friend who works with Temasek who um, mentioned this to me some time back, and he's like, I need to move a portion of the portfolio. That portion's $4 billion. I can't buy krona. What's he going to do? Well, he needs a net settled day's end. He can't buy krona. He's got three options, euro, yen, dollar. That's it. End of story. So in that perspective, um, the and, and given the fact that much of the world's debt is still dollar-denominated, in any hiccup, and maybe this hiccup that we're getting now is it, I don't know, in any hiccup, you have um, dollars go home. We saw that in the Asian crisis. You know, it started off with a bunch of Thai developers and people like, oh, yeah, it's just Thailand. I remember at the time speaking with some mates who were um, – well, one one mate who just started working for a fund in Hong Kong, and he's like, oh, we're in Hong Kong. We're basically premium Asia. We don't worry about what's happening in, you know, those shitty little countries like Thailand. And remember that, you know, they nearly lost their bloody pig. I mean, they didn't. But so, so in this global connected world, I don't want to be short dollars. Ultimately, I think the dollar's screwed, but that's, you know, What's the, what's the zero edge saying on a long enough time frame? We're all dead anyway. Mm. Um, other sectors, one of the things that I tend to focus a bunch of is, is trends of capital flows, So, um, which is where I got into that whole venture capital thing. If you look at venture capital, it's kind of interesting what what gets in, where capital gets invested in um, in that space, and then you can often see the flow through as it moves through the value chain. So you go back to 06, 07, the, the, the largest capital allocations within the VC space were into alt energy. Remember where carbon trading credits and all that kind of carry on? Um, and then we had the solar ETF. So solar got a lot of uh, attention and we had the solar ETF TAN got listed in, I think it was late 07, and that was the end. Because that's how it works. Like, who's last to come in? What's retail? And so your broker, your retail broker can start selling you all a bunch of garbage companies, fine. But really when it when it gets interesting is when the, when the investment banks look at it and they go, oh, okay, let's make it really easy for these Muppets. And they'll package up a bunch of companies, call it an ETF, and say, yeah, you've got an allocation. This is how you get into this particular sector. And um, and and they're the last guys. They're like, who's going to come in after retail mom and pop? You know, it, it, that's it. And so… so SoftBank. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we had that in solar. Subsequent to that, solar… Those companies, about 90% of those that existed in that ETF at the time have gone away. The cool thing that happens with booms like that, on the other hand, is that real value gets created. Um, 
and what comes out of it can be really valuable. A good example is what we're talking we're talking on Skype at the moment. Skype exists for free for us as a consequence of the boom. Those fiber optic cables that got laid, all of that infrastructure that got laid, got laid with capital that believed in ever higher returns and it got wiped out. And so the companies that basically then went and bought up those fiber optic cables did did so for cents on the dollar. As a consequence, their OPEX didn't matter. If you and I went in, a good example is the, um, the channel. So the first guys into the channel lost their shirts. Second guys lost their shirts. I think it's like the third guys who make money because mm. we're very, very expensive. Um, same thing, but but you had to have these huge expectations to actually get it off the ground and, and build something that didn't really make sense from a pure financial economic perspective. Um, it does now, but only because there's a, basically a bunch of investors who paid for it. I, I, heard, a lo- I heard a lovely expression during the, the, the first dot-com boom because I was working at Merrill Lynch at the time and it was uh, pioneers get the arrows, settlers get the land. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And so we had that in, in solar. What happens then, of course, is many of those companies, like the companies that go away, if they've got any useful technology, it doesn't disappear. It gets bought. It just gets bought for fuck all, right? The equity holders typically get stripped out and the debt holders maybe come away with the assets. Um, and then those that survive can go and acquire more assets. And so then you have these companies that have actually got far better technology. They've, got, they've either been through bankruptcy or been restructured in some shape or form. And, um, and, they, and they're now profitable. And, and the best thing is that nobody cares about them because anybody who's been involved in them for the last three, four years has just been burned. Um, and so solar, we've been in that for some time. That's been working well for us. Um, and, and that kind of comes back to partly, you know, that, that cognitive dissonance we talked about. Either we go down the renewables path or we don't, or we do a hybrid of both. And if that is the case, then neither of these markets are priced particularly correctly in our humble opinion. So um, across the energy space, we've been interested in uh, the metals that are required for, um, just call it alt energy, or if you will, or battery technology, um, fossil fuel side of things, not so much natty gas. Um, we're not bullish on that. Um, nuclear, we've been very long, uranium. Um Shipping, we've we've been long on shipping. Um, again, it's just it's more around supply destruction. Um, the interesting thing, if you go back and you look at our more recent history, especially on the inflation side, people say, "Oh, we can't have inflation because demand is is weak," um, and that's because previous inflations that we've had have been demand-led inflations. It's been the growth of emerging markets um, and things of that nature, which has been demand-led growth. But the other thing that you can have with inflation is just supply constraint. So if you, you can have demand destruction. If demand goes down 10%, but your supply goes down 50%, you have inflation. Um, and so that's where I, like, 
I actually believe we're going to head into a stagflationary environment, mm. which is really the worst of all worlds. It's, it's kind of like getting herpes and hemorrhoids all at once. Before before we wrap up, Chris, do you want to give a quick plug for Capitalist Exploits? Sure. So that's the blog that I run. Um, we do have a couple of products with it. One is really just the research work that we do for private clients under Glenorchy Capital, which we publish for fund managers, for re- retail investors, um, and we just detail what it is that we're interested in, why we're interested in it, and all that fun stuff. And the other one is a private service for accredited investors, which is basically pipes into resources. I have felt like we're at the bottom of that cycle, and I do know that the biggest gains are typically to be had in the private equity placements in resource companies and so i hired a guy that is a mining engineer and has worked in that space for over a decade to find those deals principally for me and um to defray the costs of um of me running that operation we figured that we'd sell it as a service and it also works because then we all come into the actual private placements um, meaning we can bring more capital to the table, which means that we can get stronger terms with the companies. Um, and that's basically what we do there. So that's pretty much it. Great. Cool. Fantastic. And um, are you on Twitter? Do you tweet? Yes. Um, At Capitalist XP. EXP. Yeah, here we go. Thank you, Tim. Yep. So that's where they can find me. Um, otherwise, capitalistexploits.at or .com will take you to the same domain. Um, I started listening to some of the podcasts that you guys have had, and um, they're, they're very unique. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I've, I've been enjoying some of them. I was just listening to the Dominic Frisbee one. Oh yes, uh, he's superb. Night. He is superb. I actually got my wife got me his book. Um, Daylight robbery. Is it the um, Bitcoin no, one? The previous one. Oh, the Bitcoin. Oh, the Bitcoin. Yes. Bitcoin, the future of money is excellent. Such a good book. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a view yeah. on it yourself, or are you still still experimenting in the space or, or researching? You know, when I was running the VC stuff, um, I had a buddy who, you know, and I guess everyone's got one of these bloody stories. He told me all about it when it was three bucks, and he he's a tech nut. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, I couldn't figure that out. It was just like, that's just voodoo nonsense. Um, long and short, we, we did spend some time and then I got in at about 4.50. Um, so it's been easily the most phenomenal investment I've had in my lifetime. Um, my view on it subsequently has been we're long. I think it requires position sizing that makes sense. And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, when when you are treated very poorly by an investment, the natural response is to shy away from it. If I burn you with a stick, you will run away from me. If I give you a back rub or whatever, or maybe not, if I, if I was a lady and I gave you a back rub, <laughs> you might like that, right? And so... The, with Bitcoin, it's been very rewarding. And so 
there's a desire, natural desire to um, to like it more. And so I'm always cognizant that um, you try and, and divorce yourself from those psychological um, powers that can have over you. That being said, I think, you know, I, I, I wrote a... Um, I wrote a research piece for our our publication uh, back in October last year, um, which fortunately turned out to be fairly fortuitous, at least um, over the last few weeks. And it was the three things to own in a crisis. <clears throat> and for me, that dollars for liquidity, because we live in a globally integrated society where the dollar is still king. It is that it's the most liquid. It's the, it's the, uh, the safest um, in terms of the fiat currencies with that in, in that respect. Um, so it's dollar. <clears throat> and then there's a whole lot of call options that you could get on it at the time that were fantastically cheap. Um, it's gold for all the reasons that um, the gold bugs have espoused in the past. And it's Bitcoin. Um, and from the Bitcoin side of things, it is the anti-money. It is the anti-establishment um, in a world which is increasingly distrustful. And I don't mean that, and I mean that both on a domestic basis as well as an international one. Internationally, geopolitically, we are far more fractious today than we were 10 years ago. Um, and in that world, distrust is is increasing and we only need to look at what's taking place now with China. Nobody trusts their numbers and why would you? Of course, they'll still print 6% GDP at the end of the year, don't worry. But in that world, um, there's an asymmetry that exists with Bitcoin. Um, I grew up in, in a country which had capital controls. I've visited and traveled to many countries which have them. And it's not a coincidence that in those countries, the participation level for Bitcoin is far higher and the, and the premiums that one will pay is far higher. If you were to get money out of, say, Zimbabwe, and it was a country that I know well, you can't do so. Holding, owning gold doesn't help you. It helps you only insofar as it restores or retains its wealth. But if you try and cross a border with it, they'll put a bullet through the back of your head. Mm. That's not really worth it. So you, whereas with Bitcoin, you have that ability to, um, to retain some wealth and move it. And you can get on a plane, go to Singapore, get off the plane, and you can um, access your wallet and off you go. That we've never had the ability to do that before. <clears throat> you me you mentioned the three things to own in a crisis. That reminds me of there's a Warren Zevon song that you probably know that has the lyrics, send lawyers, guns, and money, the shit has hit the fan. <laughs> yes yes so that's that's my view on that do you guys have a view i'm curious on um on bitcoin go ahead tim from my perspective i i i'm not bright enough to to fathom the the ins and outs of it yet so i i would challenge your use your description of it as an investment i'd call it a in, in classic benjamin graham terminology i'd call it something closer to a speculation not, notwithstanding the fact that it's clearly a speculation that's made a lot of people a ton of money. Um, as an Austrian school sympathizer, I'm naturally supportive of what it represents because I believe there should be more monies, more currencies rather than less. But for the moment, I, I've only backed um, physical gold. 
Mm. And from my point of view, I, I, I agree with what Tim said there. I think um, people, it, it, you would look to have it in a portfolio just simply because of the potential upside. It's almost like taking, a, taking an option trade. Uh, so having zero exposure to it might not make sense, but certainly putting everything in, your, in the basket wouldn't either. But in terms of an emerging tech, an emerging technology and and its uses, uh, it may be that that say ether or, or one of the other flavors becomes more prevalent. Um, but so far, it's it's not on the high street. It's um, it, originally people said it was it was tr- to transact, and that doesn't seem to happen. And then it's well, it's a store of wealth. Okay, could be. Uh, given what's going on with the central banks, um, the it, it makes sense in that environment. But will it make sense when interest rates are at ten percent? You know, that's when things change. So that for for something to survive, it needs to go through a period of high and low interest rates. And I'm not sure that it could survive if you can get ten percent on your your return by putting your money in a bank. Remember, those days did exist. Why would you hold it in Bitcoin, potentially? Um, but, you know, if there's hyperinflation, yeah, of course. So so it, it's just the, the jury's still out on on whether this is a bubble that is being blown simply because there is so much liquidity in the system. And ironically, the, the governments are trying to prop up the banks and save the system. So therefore, this continues. Um, it, it blows a bubble elsewhere, and we've seen it in in other assets. Um, but does it come crashing down once once there's an inverted commas normalization? And I'm not sure about that. In many ways, I don't really care. It's um, because it has enough volatility for traders to get in and out of the market, and you know that ultimately, I'd rather take that than something that doesn't move at all. So, whether lots of people have made money out of it. I don't really care about that. That's not that happens out of everything. You know, a lot of people made money out of Amazon in 2000 when it, you know, when we were in a dot com boom. That didn't mean it it wasn't going to collapse, which it then did. And there were plenty of other stocks that then collapsed and went to zero <clears throat> and didn't recover. So ultimately, uh, I think to get a big uptake on it, the man on the street and the woman and the non gender person needs to decide to transact in it and be happy to do that. Otherwise, you've just got a concentration of, of very tech-minded people with potentially a lot of money just, just pumping it into it. So I think it needs wider uptake uh, for it to have a bigger future, but it, it could still have that. And I think that the final thing that I would say that is at risk is, are we really going to say that governments with the power that they have, <clears throat> excuse me, with central banks, with the powers that they have to print money and to control the monetary system are just going to allow that to be handed over to a currency, a, a cryptocurrency. And if they just decide that it's illegal to trade in it and to hold it, that's the end of it. So there is that risk. I'm not saying they're necessarily going to do that, but they could pull the rug on it very easily. Um, and so there are some some questions out there, some big questions about it, its future, but sympathy for it, absolutely, and I th- I'd, I'd love to see it succeed. I think it would be great, 
But at the moment, there are still a few major obstacles to that. I agree with what you said. I think the there's the Bitcoin maximalists, as they call themselves, who are not unlike the gold bugs. And they're, in my opinion, both wrong in that they think it's a little bit like the Highlander. There can be only one, right? Yeah. Um, gold is not going to become the main, in my opinion, the main... Um, monetary instrument um, and neither is Bitcoin um, and it doesn't need to in order for you to um, use it in a portfolio to uh, provide really probably insurance is is the first thing to think about with it um, and with respect to Bitcoin one of the things if you look at the evolution of um, of a market, and, and we talked about this a little bit with solar, the institutions are coming into that. And I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect, and it's a decent speculation, as you mentioned, Tim, the word speculation, that we will get to a point where there'll be um, ETFs and there'll be the ability to have an allocation towards it um, through type of brokerage accounts and through mutual funds and everything else. And in that respect, because it's a deflationary asset, um, then I think it could get really wild. Um, I don't know if that's going to take place. Um, I don't, it's, it's not going to be used as the medium to, to transact with because it's too slow. And because it's a deflationary asset, nobody wants to necessarily offload it um, to use it for transactional ability. But there have been other um, ways of actually doing that with side chains and all sorts of other fun stuff. So um, it's still it's there's a lot still being done around the edges. If you um, talk to people that are more knowledgeable about that topic, um, what that looks like um, in the next five ten years is anybody's guess. But I think from when 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 you look at the risks that we have in the world, um, geopolitically, domestically, in terms of asset bubbles, um, and and the the problem that it does solve right now, which for most people, it's not a pro- like nobody nobody thinks about capital controls in the West, for, for the people that have capital, no one really thinks about that. They don't consider that to be a risk. You talk to any Venezuelan or a Cypriot or an Argentinian, and they will more easily understand the value that Bitcoin has, not in terms of the actual price value, but in terms of the utility value. Um, and and for me, that's one of the, the decent reasons to own have, or have some allocation towards it more as a as a as an insurance product. Um, if you look at what's happened, okay, China's a communist country, but can you imagine you have what is now I think seventy million people who are quarantined and locked down, and that happened in a month. Mm. Now, we've had experiences like that where the same thing happens to a to to the financial world. If your capital got locked down within the space of a month, like I don't know how long, uh, if you've recently opened a bank account overseas, 
it's a long-winded, fucking difficult mm. process. It is not easy. And so... So it's almost as difficult as opening a bank account in the UK. <laughs> Which actually used to be one of the easiest places in the world to do it. You know that? 20 years ago. There's a great deal of ruin in a nation. There is. So, anyway, we've um, I've kept you guys going for... Uh, far too long no it's been great it great been. so we were going to do we were going to we were going to do some media picks so what we should do is oh. give give tim an opportunity yes. to give you his maybe i'll give you mine and then that will give you a chance to think of one if that's all right so i'll go first mine is a book that my partner's been enjoying uh, immensely over the last few weeks it's a book called bears can't run downhill and two <laughs> and 200 other dubious pub facts explained <laughs> by a guy called Robert Anwood. And as a as a as a as a big pub quiz goer, this is this is like this is like the holy grail. And 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 also as as someone who goes to the pub, uh, not just not just for <laughs> quizzes, but uh, to talk about things like whether bears can run downhill and whether 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 ants have arseholes, all these kind of, you know, pressing matters. But it's it's very very it's 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 amusing, intriguing, but it's very very funny. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, mine I think I've already said this one before, so I'm not sure if I can say it again. So I'll say two. Uh, Searching for Sugarman is a documentary. I'm not sure if you've seen it, Chris. Have you seen it? What's it called? It's, it's Searching for Sugarman. It's about the artist Rodriguez being from South Africa. You've oh, seen... I have. Yes. 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 Okay. So that, okay. Yep. I just wanted to check whether you'd seen it. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. It's a great documentary. It's got fantastic reviews everywhere. So I'd highly recommend that, but I think I've recommended it before. So just in case I have another one, uh, I don't know what sort of music you're into, but I, I love like heavy rock, um, to metal. I grew up in eighties metal, loving it. And I still do, uh, in the, in the right places. And, um, I came across a story a few years ago about a guy called Jason Becker and he's the greatest guitarist that you've never heard of. I mean, this guy was so good that, um, he was blowing everybody away with how fast he could play. He was like a, a modern day, you know, uh, Paganini. I mean, he's just incredible, absolutely incredible. He's been signed up for the David Lee Roth band, um, and uh, or David Lee, he was signed up for Van Halen to go on tour with them, uh, with David Lee Roth at that time in the I think early eighties. But why haven't you heard of him? Um, because he developed ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, and it's just such a, a an emotional documentary, but one that is uh, very inspirational, um, shall we say? So I, I you can watch it on YouTube as well, which I was. What, what's the film called? It's called Not Dead Yet. Not Dead um, Yet. Not Dead Yet by Jason Becker. And it's a very inspirational film, I think. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, just, just you know, I, I think every now and again we need a dose of reality. And that's, that, all, that's, that, also, that's also the title of the forthcoming Labour Party documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Chris, so have we given you a chance? It doesn't have to be a film, by the way, but yeah. No, I haven't. I haven't watched. I don't watch much television, to be honest. Um, I have what is 
I've read it quite some time ago, and it's one of my standout favorite books, which is um, Sapiens. Ah, oh, yeah. Superb, superb. That's really superb. It was, um, it put a lot of things into context for me. It's, um, it's as the title states, the story or, or a history of mankind. Um, and womankind, fascist. fascist. And, yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and insects. Yes, yes. You damn sis, sis you. Um, the other is something that um, one of my staff brought up and he bought it for his daughter. And I've subsequently got it for my kids, although they're quite a bit older. And it's the story of the pencil by Leonard Reed. Oh, um, that sounds brilliant. It's, it's it it walks you through the creation of the pencil and the pencil factory, and 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 it and it it gives you all of the, the attendant um, components that go into the pencil, and then. Um, that n- none of us, none of us would be able to afford. None of us would be able to afford to do this ourselves. But you can pick them up for pence in the shop. And it's and it's this this very humble little pencil that you pay a few cents for. Um, and it's it's a, it's a it's a really brilliant for for anyone that has children and wants to give them an economic background without boring them to tears and and having them uh, sit there and squeeze their eyes up at you and wonder what the hell are you saying dad um it's a brilliant it's a brilliant book to get because it's very easy to understand um little children can read it and understand the process and what's happening and everything else um great foundational sort of work for for kids and and i dare say adults too um because there's many who wouldn't understand quite fully um, what it is that we should be grateful for. Um, I would suggest that every socialist Marxist should read this book um, and fully in, um, you know, get it into their thick skull around um, what it actually means. Because if you, if you understand the book, you would understand why, um, why socialism doesn't work and why Marxism doesn't work. Um, and why the exploitation of people and resources is probably the best thing that's ever happened to man. So, those are my two picks. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, And uh, I'll definitely be putting links to your blog in the show notes and your Twitter handle, etc. And hope to have you back on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I would love to, Jens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and you. Enjoy your now late evening. Yes, enjoy your day. Enjoy your morning. We could hear the birds chirping, which was lovely. Yes. In New Zealand. Unfortunately, the pub's closed, Jens. I looked <laughs> 20 minutes ago. You'll yep. have to do it tomorrow night. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Take care then. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya. All the best. Bye bye. And if you stayed with us till the end, thank you so much for listening. We hope you really enjoyed it. It was quite a lot covered in this one. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.